Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about a couple of sponsors that are making today's show possible. And first up, our dear friends at EA Sports. They are out with the latest version of FIFA, the video game that Aaron and I have been playing since we were uh, but young men in college. Aaron is currently uh, touring with his band. He's on the road, which means I'm by myself. It's a lonely existence. And uh, FIFA really is the only thing getting me through it. Aaron, come home. Let's play some FIFA. Thanks very much to the uh, good folks at EA Sports. They've been with us for a long time. With us for the first time this week, the good folks at Wonder Capital, the award-winning online investment platform that allows individuals to invest in solar energy projects across these United States. Wonder Capital says you can earn up to 8.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash longform. That's W-U-N-D-E-R-C-A-P-I-T-A-L dot com slash longform. Wonder Capital. Do well and do good. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff, co-host from The Atavist. I'm joined by Max Linsky from Longform. Hey, Max. Hello, sir. Just the two of us here. Aaron somewhere at a stage... He's on a stage. Aaron's like doing a sound check at some like theater in Detroit right now. That's what I, that's what I think. I think we can acknowledge that Aaron has moved on. He, he Aaron's above us now. <laughs> like Aaron Aaron is in a better place. But folks should find him on the road. Like we're not going to get to see him, but uh, listeners to the podcast can go out and go to a Francis and the Light show and and then find Aaron Lammer. Have a much better time than you'll have with this podcast. It's all <laughs> better where Aaron is. That's the point I'm trying to make. Evan, who did you talk to for this week's episode? Uh, this week I talked to Luke Dietrich, um, who we've wanted to have on the show for a long time. He was a longtime writer for Esquire magazine, um, but more recently he's written a book called Patient HM. I should disclose here that uh, Luke and I share a book editor, Andy Ward, who's also been on this podcast. Coincidentally, you interviewed him for the podcast. I had never met him. I interviewed him before he was your book editor. Yeah. Um, and I was buttering him up for you. Yeah. <laughs> 
And he uh, like Luke's on the back end of having been edited by Andy Ward, and I'm on the front end of I actually haven't written a book. It's at the beginning of the process, but uh, that is something I think Andy comes up maybe in this uh, interview. So just so people know, but um, the book I was really fascinated by this book. It's a book about science, and it's a book about his family. And uh, there was a big excerpt in the New York Times Magazine that got a lot of attention, and uh, it's really interesting to hear him talk about the process. That excerpt in the New York Times Magazine, I feel like book excerpts. Uh, have this condition where they are either so little that they're not worth reading. Like you, the whole time I'm just like, I'm going to stop reading this and buy the book. Or they're so good that I feel like I don't need to buy the book. And Luke's excerpt was this rare one that was like, as a standalone piece of writing, totally fascinating. And I wanted to go read the book. Yeah. Well, credit. I think uh, Mike Benoit at the New York Times Magazine edited that. Edited that excerpt is what Luke told me. So credit shout, to him. Shout out to Mike Benoit. <laughs> shout out also to MailChimp. Why? Well, I would say for one reason is uh, they're a fantastic provider of email services. If you have an email newsletter, uh, MailChimp is the way to go. More than 8 million businesses use MailChimp. Longform does. Atavis Magazine, also a user of MailChimp. They have uh, they have kept us in the black for a long time, and we appreciate so it. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> They've kept us solvent, sort of. Thank you, MailChimp, for, for keeping me off the streets. Here's Evan with Luke Dietrich. Luke, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's great um, to be here. We share we share a little bit of an Atlanta connection. I grew up in Atlanta. Okay. And I know that you worked for Atlanta Magazine I for, did. for some uh, years. I was reading some of your Atlanta Magazine work. Oh, yeah? Over the last week, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, it was actually quite a collection of, like, Georgia stories. There's a neo-Nazi story. Yes. There's Grady Hospital. Right. Which is, like, a, central to many Atlantans' experience. Definitely. Um, but we don't have to talk about Atlanta at length, but I it was interesting to me that Atlanta popped up in your book, mm. um, Patient HM, uh, which I loved. Thank you. Um, and I devoured. And... Uh, you know, on this podcast, we're often tracing people's histories of how they became journalists, mm. and your book actually sort of traces that in parallel with all of these other threads that it pulls together. So I thought I would start by asking you a little bit about what the book is about, although yeah. the book's about a lot of things, um, and then a little bit about why you wrote the book the way you did, because I think it sort of like tells its own story in some ways. Right. Yeah. And I've, you know, this is one of those questions that comes up a lot, this question of sort of when do you insert yourself into yeah, the story yeah. and what stories require the writer's presence. Exactly, um, exactly. And it's such a tough call always to make because I, I feel like I'm least comfortable writing about myself. And, you know, there are a million reasons not to put yourself in, into stories. And some of my very favorite stories, you know, the writer is not in them at all. With this book, because it has this sort of connection to my family, because it's not just this story about, you know, the, the sort of history of memory science and this famous amnesic patient, but sort of my family's strange role in that story. Um, and because it's a story that I've been grappling with at one, in one way or another, you know, for as long as I've really wanted to be a writer, I yeah. could, like that, all of these <laughs> sort of, I don't know, potentially solipsistic aspects of the story 
I, I couldn't figure out how to remove them, I guess. And hopefully they don't, you know, slow it down and or become too, you know, whatever, narcissistic. Um, but for better or for worse, I'm a part of this, you know. Yeah, it seems, I mean, that makes sense to me that you, you had to be a character. Your family is a big part of the book. And mm-hmm. so knowing how you relate to your family is important to having some people to identify with in the book. Right. And there's also this aspect of the story was one that I circled around for years and was shut down kind of multiple times as I tried to get access to Henry. So there were there were stories about process, you know, that became relevant to the book itself as a whole because these kind of walls that I encountered were in some ways similar to kind of, you know, walls that that researchers encountered and and also sort of played into this strange aspects of patient HM story, the central figure who himself was kind of shielded from the world in, mm-hmm. in interesting ways. Well, let's, let's not uh, yeah. no, I know. people yeah. to get too <laughs> right, exactly. uh, lost if they haven't read it, yeah. although they, yeah. they should. Um, or at the very least, there's an excerpt in the Times Magazine, so they could, right. uh, they could start with that. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the book. So it's, it's partly about patient HM, Henry, right. how do you pronounce his last name? Mollison. Mollison, um, the most famous, possibly most studied scientific subject. Right. And then uh, why don't you tell the part about how it relates to your sure so your family so Henry Mollison was a, a kid from Hartford Connecticut and his story really begins for me and for a lot of people when he was eight or nine years old he's he's walking down the street in in Hartford um, walking back from the playground and he gets knocked down by a bicyclist and he hits his head really hard knocks him unconscious for about five minutes um, he comes to everything seems all right but everything's not all right soon after that he begins suffering from epileptic seizures uh, and the seizures get progressively worse and worse uh, over the years until by the time he's in his early 20s uh, actually really by his mid-teens he's really debilitated by them. His his life has been slowed way down. Uh, you know, his high school principal won't let him walk across the stage to get his diploma because he's worried that Henry's going to have a seizure and sort of embarrass everybody. So socially, professionally, in sort of every way, it's impacting his life. And so he is desperate for any sort of, you know, hope, any sort of cure. And his family is too. And so they turn to a man, a local neurosurgeon, my grandfather, uh, who was a very, you know, prominent and renowned surgeon. And my grandfather offered them hope in the form of this radical experimental operation where he said, you know, I think that we may be able to alleviate Henry's epilepsy by removing these structures deep in his brain. The function of these structures was actually unknown at the time. Uh, And so my grandfather went ahead with the operation. Henry said yes. He went ahead with the operation, removed these structures in the brain, including the hippocampus, the amygdala, the uncus, the antirhinal cortex. And what quickly became clear immediately after the operation was that whatever else the operation did, uh, the most significant thing that it did was it destroyed Henry's ability to create new memories. He lived the rest of his life in sort of like 30-second increments. Every The present would just sort of slide off of him. Um, and so he became profoundly amnesic. And he lived 55 years in that state, which was obviously awful and tragic and catastrophic for him. But it was a boon to science. A lot of what we know about how memory works came from studies of this one patient who became known as Patient H.M., at what point in your life did you know who patient HM mm. was? Yeah, it's a, it's a strange question for me to answer because even though this is a book about memory, I have no real clear like 
episodic memory of when I learned about patient HM. It must have been, you know, I'm guessing early teens or something. I'm guessing maybe my mom would have told me about this strange case that her father was involved in. You know, I, I remember when I was actually living in Atlanta, I was dating a girl who was a psychology major and she was studying HM. And, and so she was telling me about him and I was like, oh, well, my grandfather, uh, uh, you know, did that. But I had always been intrigued by the story. And I think I would have been intrigued and kind of fascinated by it, even if I didn't have this family connection to it. Because, yeah. you know, memory, human research, all of these things are, are, are um, things that kind of Story-wise, I find appetizing. But yeah, the, the family connection really made it sort of irresistible. And I kind of always had in the back of my mind, someday I'd like to tackle this, but I don't know when I first heard about him. And did it, before you, you started writing about it or reporting it out, was it a story that your family told with... I don't know, great pride and uh, this famous patient was... No, and it was a story that my family didn't tell that often. Mm -hmm. I mean, my grandfather loomed large in sort of like my family's sort of, you know, mythos or whatever, you know. I mean, he was this this very charismatic, handsome, dashing, super successful guy. Um, drove fast drove cars. Drove tons of fast cars, you know, hung out with all sorts of interesting people. There was this sort of, you know, reckless adventurous side to the stories about him, but they didn't really extend into the operating room. And so his, if the story of patient HM was brought up at all, it was in the sense that, oh, well, this was, you know, he was this brilliant surgeon who saved so many people with one exception of this accident back in the 1950s, you know, that, you know, we shouldn't dwell too much on because, again, that's just one thing, right? Mm. You know, what became clear in working on first magazine article I wrote about it and then the book was that this was in no way this sort of episode kind of out of time. I mean, this was the culmination in a lot of ways of this decades-long campaign of human experimentation that he conducted. And and that certainly, that part of his story um, and his professional history, I had no idea about it. Not even, you know, my mom didn't have any idea about it. I mean, that oh, was wow. something that, that if it, if people in the family were aware of it, it was something they never talked about. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's pause that story that's in sure. uh, his story in the book for a second, because I feel like this is where it very interestingly intersects with how you became a journalist. Mm. So you know this story uh, in the back of your mind somewhere, you're interested mm. in it, but then the book sort of goes into after college how you became a journalist. You're like overseas teaching English, I think. That's right, yeah. And it was one of the rare cases of like I'm reading a book and it's talking about pitching stories and pitches getting rejected. <laughs> like it could not be more perfect for this podcast. Um, <laughs> but uh, talk a little bit about how you first sure. uh, got that first sort of assignment. Yeah, I, 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 I think this is the case with pretty much every journalist, but I sort of fell into it. Um, I graduated from college in, I guess it was 96. And I just had no idea what I wanted to do with myself. Um, I had a history degree, but I'd, you know, I'd settled on that after a few other majors and I had no particular interest in becoming a historian. I always liked to write. And I remember, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. I'd just graduated. I had just read this series of novels called The Alexandria Quartet by Lawrence Durrell. And they were beautifully written and they were set in Alexandria and Egypt. And they made Alexandria sound like the most beautiful city in the world, very romantic. And the central character, one of the central characters was an English teacher there, an expat English teacher. And so I decided I'd move to, to Alexandria. And so I kind of just got up and went. I, I, I knew, you know, vaguely some people that were living in Egypt at the time and they sort of helped me 
get set up there. I ended up hating Alexandria, but I was in Egypt, so I, I moved to, to Cairo. And again, not knowing what to do, I found the work that a lot of expats living in Egypt find, which is teaching English. And I had this weird gig that gave me lots of free time teaching English to oil workers that were sort of off the rigs briefly. And they uh, hated coming to my class because they had <laughs> like they had they were like two weeks on one week off. And then the company suddenly decided they kind of decreed that they were going to have to spend five days out of those seven day, you know, vacations in my classroom. And so in sort of silent rebellion, they just stopped coming to class. And you're so just I like had a kid like, right out of college. Exactly. Too. Yeah, exactly. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was a lousy teacher. And so I f- ended up sitting in this huge like you know, kind of palatial conference room overlooking the Nile for hours every day with nothing to do. And so I started writing about, you know, my experiences in Egypt. And, you know, in my free time, I was rowing on the Nile. Um, I joined this Egyptian rowing club and I would row a single skull on the Nile. And one day I found this dead body floating down the, the Nile and I ended up writing a story kind of about that. I was actually like a letter home to my grandmother, but then I tried to repurpose it and sell it to a local um, English language newspaper. Did you report um, out what happened with the body? I didn't. And I. this is one of those things where I've, like it was a classic first story in that it was entirely sort of narcissistic in that it was all about like my experiences seeing this dead body and what emotions, you know, roiled me when I'm seeing this dead body rolling out. But it was completely like, it was almost psychopathic in its like, you know, indifference to who this person was. You know what I mean? I mean, it was all about me, me, me. Uh-huh. And I've always thought that I would love to actually go back and do the, the the right story, which is figuring out who the hell this person was. But yeah, I mean, it was it was a, a, a completely self-centered piece, um, which ultimately, you know, it, it, it though was my first stepping stone into kind of like journalism. Yeah. Uh, and so I began working actually for a local magazine called um, Egypt Today, which was owned by a Texan woman whose husband was also sort of deeply involved in the oil business and they were living in Cairo. And so she decided to set up basically this strange doppelganger of Texas Monthly in Cairo. Uh So everything about it, like the format, the editor's page, everything (laughs) was like cribbed from Texas Monthly, but it was set in Egypt. Well, if you're going to borrow from something. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, And Texas Monthly is an amazing magazine. So it was, it was actually like, you know, for what it was, it was, it was an ideal way to start right from the get-go. You know, I I started writing longish features about all sorts of things. And and, And was uh, someone helping you through that? Were there, were there editors who were good or were you getting it from reading? How, How did you know how to... Um, Go from the fully narcissistic, uh, my experience story (laughs) to a reported story. Yeah. um, I did have good editors. Um, Marette Mabruk was one of them. Uh, And uh, I learned. I mean, the the good thing was that, you know, young people who are interested in in getting into writing ask me sort of what path to take. Uh, Who knows? But I do know that it can be useful, I think, to start someplace so far from everywhere else because you can mess up and and have awful stories out there that that people aren't necessarily reading. And I'm getting the practice that I need and figuring out sort of the the, the process. But it was a slow thing. And, you know, I, I, I learned bit by bit, I guess, how to put together a 
a long story. And how did you end up back in the States mm. doing this stuff? Yeah, so I, after a while, I just uh, I felt like Egypt was kind of wearing me down. Almost, more, more than almost anything else was just the air pollution and the noise pollution. It can get brutal after a while. And so I, I wanted to move, and I started looking on, um, you know, online for, I think there was something, I'm not sure if it still exists, journalismjobs.com or something like that. that. I don't know if yeah. it still exists. <laughs> yeah. It probably does. So, and I found that they were start, there was a weekly news, uh, like an alt-weekly was starting in Savannah, Georgia, um, and they were paying well enough. And Savannah, I, I think I just read like Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, <laughs> and I knew like whatever else Savannah was, it was going to be a spa by comparison. And so I, I moved to Savannah and started working for, for an alt-weekly there, and that was great. I love Savannah. I mean, it's such yeah, a great it's city. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then presumably that led to Atlanta. That led, yeah. Actually. I was there and I moved to Atlanta. I was actually teaching Spanish for a while in, in Atlanta. I worked for this company called Inlingua and then they got me gigs, like all sorts of weird corporate gigs. Like I would go to Chick-fil-A and teach a classroom full of like Chick-fil-A corporate executives uh, Spanish <laughs> for some reason. And also I, had a, I was a one-on-one tutor to the president of Coca-Cola of the Americas, uh, teaching him Spanish. And my Spanish is okay, but it's not like, like I really shouldn't have been the person teaching them Spanish, but I was doing it. Um, but I had, again, sort of lots of free time and I started doing some work for the Oxford American. I did a couple features for them. Then I reached, I think I reached out to Atlanta Magazine and got hired on there as a, as a staff writer. It's a lot of great people pass through Atlanta Magazine. Yeah, there's yeah. been, I mean, yeah, uh, Justin Hecker, Tom Janot, Tom Lake, Paige Williams, yeah. exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, there have been tons of really good good people um, and fantastic editors. Uh, Lee Walburn uh, hired me on. Uh, Rebecca Burns then took over for Lee. It was it was a great place to work. And Atlanta, you know, I mean, you know, Atlanta. It's it's. Uh, I feel like it's a very sort of story rich environment. Yeah, yeah. Know? There's sort of those um, great like Southern Gothic stories, yeah. and then there's great sort of modern hip hop and exactly yeah, everything's happening. There. Yeah. yeah, no, tons of sort of interesting intersections there. So you talk a little bit in the book about how you came across an Esquire editor, an Esquire editor judged the mm. regional magazine competition and then uh, saw some of your stories and asked you to pitch. And then the second story you pitched was about patient HM. That's, that's right. And yeah. when I'm interested in that moment in which this uh, thing you've been thinking about sort of becomes real as something you actually have to look into. Yeah. It, it was this clear transition between, even though it had already been kind of always this sort of back pocket story idea, I hadn't really begun thinking concretely about how to do it before the editor that I first got approached by at at, uh, at Esquire, Terry Noland, he rejected my first pitch. And then he was like, well, you just got to come up with a pitch that, that, you know, only you can do that has, you know, resonance and all this stuff. And, and, right. And then suddenly it kind of, it seemed like, oh, well, then why not? That it's a no brainer. So I, I then pitched the story and I remember, I mean, I had this complete sort of overly optimistic view of how it was going to come together because I I thought like, wow, well, this actually, I mean, it kind of hits all the right notes. Plus, I totally am going to get access because, you know, this person who becomes a central character in my book, um, who was the lead researcher in the case of patient HM, happened to be a woman I'd known pretty much my entire life and was, you know, one of my mom's oldest friends. And so I pitched the story to Terry 
and then almost as an afterthought, I was like, oh, yeah, and I'll, I'm going to reach out to this woman now and, and we'll figure out when I can go meet patient HM and we'll get started right away and da, da, da. And so uh, he was like he was like instantly um, on board with the story. The and then I the editor was yeah. and then I emailed the researcher and, uh, you know, her first response after sort of weeks of non-response was uh, to say, would you mind seeing if Esquire could destroy the pitch that you sent them? Because <laughs> she thought that, that even my pitch was sort of too much of an imposition on uh, the privacy of this patient. Uh, so it quickly, like my hopes for doing the story at that time, were not t- completely quashed at that time, but certainly like tempered, I guess. And then how long was it before you actually did the story? So I didn't do the story. That was, I think, 2004 uh, when I first made that pitch. And then I, I did the story finally in 2009. It was, mm. it was it, what made the story doable ultimately was, you know, unfortunately, was Henry, patient HM, dying. It wasn't until he died that sort of this sort of weird veil of privacy and anonymity that cloaked him dissipated enough to actually start doing the, the reporting. I mean, I tried. I tried to actually find him while he was alive. And I think I got fairly close. I mean, I figured out what his real name was, which up until then was almost like, you know, it was like a state secret. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I tried to find out sort of physically where he was being uh, kept. But I failed. And so it was one of these things where I, you know, I put in some legwork. I traveled to Hartford. I, you know, traveled around, tried to do it, and, and it ultimately just fell apart. And so I didn't end up doing that that original story with Terry. I ended up doing, though, a story about patient HM for uh, Tyler Cabot, who became sort of my mainstay editor um, at at Esquire. And when Henry, when patient HM died, I could see that cutting the other way where you could say, okay, well now I, I'll never get the chance to, to meet him and have that moment. And yeah. so I won't be able to do the story. Well, it was actually, and it was Tyler, Tyler Cabot, who ultimately, because I sort of felt the same way when I found out that, and you know, as soon as he died, the next day it was a front page obituary in the New York Times. Yeah, suddenly, suddenly his name was revealed. It was like all, you know, everything just sort of dropped away overnight. But in terms of doing a story, I was like, oh, well, that's that. You know, I was like, well, if I can't meet him, how, you know, how can I do this story? And I kind of had my chance and, and uh, it didn't work out. But then a year later, after a year after he died, I, I was like browsing online and I saw a link to um, this live stream of the dissection of Henry's brain, which was suddenly this big sensation in the neuroscientific world uh, where like hundreds of thousands of people were watching this weird, you know, live stream of this 48 hour long dissection where they were slicing up his brain in, in uh, university in San Diego, University of California, San Diego. And I had been working with Tyler by that point for for years, and so he and I had talked about patient HM and my frustrations with that story and all of that, so he knew the backstory. And I sent him almost just like as kind of an aside almost, I sent him a link to that live stream. And I was like, you know, I don't know. I mean, look, look, this is going on now. It seems like the story is still kind of alive maybe. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. So he saw that there was still some there there to dig into. And, uh, And so that that's when I really started reporting the book, I'd say. Um, I went down to San Diego soon afterwards and began spending time in the laboratory where Henry's brain was. Then my reporting sort of led me backwards from, you know, where his brain was posthumously back into his life. (laughs) ¶¶ 
Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put these guys on hold for a second and uh, tell you about a couple sponsors making today's show possible. First up, Audible. Audible is, of course, the leading provider of spoken word ephemera in the world. They have 250,000 audiobooks for you to choose from. They're also making original podcasts now, and the shows are good. I can tell you that. But if you are listening to this show, uh, this particular episode of the Longform Podcast, I have a recommendation for you. Uh, Patient HM, this book that Evan and Luke have been talking about, it is fantastic, as you can hear. And here's my suggestion. Uh, don't read it with your eyes. Read it with your ears. Go to audible.com slash longform. That's audible.com slash longform. You get a 30-day free trial, and you can download any book of your choice. Why not make it Patient HM? You can listen to this book that these guys are talking about right now for free today. Thanks, Audible. Also sponsoring the show this week, Squarespace. And if you are in the market for a website, maybe you've got a personal portfolio, something for your business, any kind of website, Squarespace is the easiest way to finally get that site on the internet. Here's why. You don't need to know a lick of code. Everything just works. It's drag and drop. They've got these beautiful templates that work on any device. It's so simple and so easy. You will not hit a single snag. But if you do, they've got 24-7 customer support. They'll walk you through any problem you might be having. It's really, it's, uh, you got no excuse. You got no excuse anymore not to build that website you've been meaning to build. Start your free trial today. Go to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, enter the code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show. And let's get back to Luke and Evan. Now, there's there are two to me, like big revelations in the book that we can't avoid talking about sure, a little bit. Sure. So it's like a spoiler alert for yeah. people uh, who haven't haven't read it. But one of them involves your family and your grandmother. Right. And um, how did you confront the idea of like dealing with your family and whether or not they mm. might want you to do this or what you might discover? Was there a process by which you said, hey, I'm doing this yeah. and get everyone's approval? Or how did it go? Um, so... I, I knew, and just sort of a thumbnail sketch of sort of my grandmother's role in this. Um, so my grandmother was mentally ill. She was institutionalized um, for a period of time uh, in the 1940s. And my grandfather was, apart from being sort of a traditional neurosurgeon, he was a, a prolific and passionate lobotomist, one of the most prolific lobotomists in the world. And his passion for the lobotomy grew out of a very personal desire to sort of fix his own wife, my grandmother, um, which is something I never understood at all um, before beginning work on the book, really. But did you um, know she had been institutionalized? I knew she had been institutionalized vaguely. Mm -hmm. yeah, there was sort of, that was something even my mom wasn't unclear on when, if, all of that. The details of her illness were really fuzzy to most of the people in my family, or if the people knew more of the details, they weren't, they weren't talking about it. It was, yeah, I mean, most of what's in the book, I ended up getting sort of very detailed accounts of, of what she endured in the asylums, was certainly new to my mom. Her illness was not a part whatsoever of my magazine story that led to the book. It just wasn't a part of it. I, I knew she'd been ill, but I had no clue how it connected to the larger story, so it made no sense to include it at all. But it was something that was always kind of on the verge of being included, so I remember when I told my mom, I called my mom after I got the book deal and, you know, my mom's 
great and supportive and is always, you know, my biggest fan. But as soon as I told her that I got, you know, my first book deal for this story about Haitian HM, her first words were, oh, no, you know, that was sort of... Uh, her gut reaction to it, because I think she knew at a certain level that I was going to be dredging up very painful stories. And I think at that point, even she didn't know the depth of the pain that, that some of the stories were, that I was kind of, you know, find were going to kind of lay out there. It, but no, I never had like a formal talk. This is what we're going to include. I have had conversations with my mom since where she'll say, you know, this is off the record, which is strange. Um, you yeah, know, she's, yeah, she no, she's very, she's, yeah, exactly. She's being careful. She's super cagey now about telling me anything. Yeah. I mean, anything she tells me now that has like any kind of negative connotation um, uh, in terms of like family history, she'll like often, you know, append a, a, an off the record thing to it. So, which is very strange. But, um, but yeah, no, it, it's one of those things where I, I struggled with what to include and, and how much was relevant um, because I don't believe that it's right to just lay somebody's darkest moments out on the table just because they're dark and interesting because they're dark. You know, I think they if it didn't have if my grandma's madness didn't have a real connection to the larger story of the book, my inclination would have been to leave it. Uh, kind of in the closet, mm-hmm. um, but as it was, I it was it was another sort of unavoidable thing. Sort of like whether you know should I include myself in the story? I kind of had to. Um, my grandmother is, I think, even more irreplaceable than than I am in the story. I mean, yeah. I think that she's. You understand the desperation that led to kind of this campaign of human experimentation. Um, uh, but you also sort of understand the, the hubris and the, the sort of overstepping and overreaching by the medical community of the time, I yeah. think, through what she endured also. Yeah, and, and when I was reading it, I kept thinking this feels like a very big burden in some ways, like mm. to have a family story. And then, for instance, you are framing your, your grandfather's work in the context of the larger context of human experimentation and you know, Nazi experimentation on humans and how does that play into what's allowed and what's not allowed. I wonder how you internally Mm -hmm. dealt with needing to portray this as a reporter and also feeling some obligations towards your family legacy. Right. And it's one of those things where there were throughout kind of trying to figure out how to tell the story and what aspects were relevant and what were not, you know, a lot of decisions to make, obviously. Um, but one of them was, you know, you, you brought up the sort of Nazi experimentation. Uh, you know, I, the one critic in particular I remember who wrote about the book said something about how I was, you know, basically saying that my grandfather was on a level with Nazi doctors, which I don't agree with that at all. And I don't think that the book presents him that way. I think what I tried to do and, and why it was relevant, including some of the history of sort of Nazi experimentation, is because there is this sort of strange continuum there. And the notions of informed consent, uh, modern notions of, infor- of informed consent, really grew out of this sort of being repulsed by the sort of Nazi experimentation. Um, but tragically, you find that in the United States, despite this sort of widespread kind of public condemnation of the violations of informed consent uh, that you found during the Nazi era, there were, if not equally abhorrent, still kind of on that same continuum violation of informed consent that, that you would find in the United States. Yeah, Tuskegee and, experiments right, are, Tuskegee are experiments, on the level of as abhorrent. Y- you could say, yeah. yeah. And also 
the types of experiments that my grandfather was conducting in the asylums, along with, and it's not just him, it's like him and basically the cream of the crop of the neurosurgical community at the time uh, were participating in these experiments with what they deemed to be kind of psychiatric material. Um, and they sort of viewed these people as, as perfect research subjects in a sense because they were like, you know, they were, they were like uh, chimpanzees, but they could talk, which, mm-hmm. which made them more valuable. So it's sort of it's where it's sort of like real pure motivations of wanting to solve these human problems meet this sort of ambition to succeed. And I feel like that that also comes together in the other big revelation, which is was around the researcher who managed patient HM, the one who sure. rejected your entreaties at first, but you eventually do connect with. And I know you've probably been forced to talk about this, like a quote unquote controversy around the book a bunch of times now, but I felt like uh, when you when you got to that part of the book, because it, it doesn't come till really pretty late on, did you feel like, wow, this is going to blow up? I mean, it's mm. we can talk a little about what it is first. It's about basically informed consent right. of patient HM. Was patient HM giving informed consent or people properly giving it on his behalf? Yeah. And when you came to that, did you think, oh, shit, like mm. this is a hornet's nest that I didn't realize I was getting into? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely, when I finally managed to sit down with this lead researcher after, you know, years of attempts, um, I had two kind of extended interviews with her. And um, her name is Suzanne Corkin, or was Suzanne Corkin. She sadly passed away. But I knew that what she was telling me, some of what she was telling me, and some of what I had learned elsewhere about kind of the research that she had conducted with Henry was very troubling and raised troubling issues about kind of research ethics and informed consent. And and it seemed clear to me that for most of Henry's time as a research subject, and again, he wasn't just a research subject, he's the most important human research subject of all time, a man who, who entire careers were built on, including the career of this woman, Suzanne Corkin, that he was arguably improperly consented, that either he was giving the consent, which actually makes no sense at all because he was not in a position to do so. He's a this man a with a 30-second memory who yeah. is also neurologically predisposed because of other damage to his brain to basically consent to anything. He was a docile sort of passive creature. You put a document in front of him and he's going to sign it at that point. Other than that, there were, you know, his landlady basically signed his informed consent forms for a period of time and she had no legal authority to do so. Then they finally got a guy um, to become his sort of court-appointed conservator on the basis of being Henry's next of kin, Um, but he was not Henry's next of kin, which I discovered. So, you know, the consent he gave was questionable at best. Um, Anyway, you have all these issues surrounding informed consent, you know, MIT, they really haven't grappled with the questions of informed consent whatsoever, because I don't think they have a real answer for it. I mean, there's not... Um, yeah. Well, we should and, say MIT is the is the institution sure. oh, yeah, that sorry. sort of like, in some ways, uh, yeah. is responsible for a lot of the research because this primary researcher worked for MIT. Sure, yeah. No, and so for the last sort of four decades of Henry's life, uh, MIT was the the institution in charge of him. There was the lead researcher who worked with him, um, but ultimately the buck stops with MIT. I mean, and I think that they were they were the ones who had responsibility um, to ensure that his informed consent was protected. And I I would argue that they failed in their responsibility. And they, they released a statement. Well, they released a statement before the book even came out. Um, 
And it was uh, like a day or two after this New York Times magazine excerpt of the book ran, uh, they released a statement um, that was just this sort of general pushback, basically saying I'm I'm an asshole, um, signed by 200 neuroscientists. And uh, so they were writing this sort of letter of condemnation without the book in hand. Um, then they, uh, I say a week later or so, they came out with some more sort of specific uh points of contention. I think there were three or four of them, uh, which I responded. They were all very easy to respond to. One of which was, you know, the the lead researcher told me, you know, on tape and, and on the record that she had shredded a large amount of Henry's raw data and that she intended to shred more. And uh, and MIT's response to that was, well, no, she didn't shred any of that, and we don't know why she would have said that. But you know, it's one of those things. I ba- you know I presented in the book and in the magazine as something coming from her. Yeah, uh, she is the person who was in the best position to know the status of Henry's data. You know, the reporting is. People can go online and listen to my exchange with her about the data on tape. Yeah, it seemed. I was curious if it felt when that happened, when that came out, like. Like in some ways, a good thing. Like, okay, people like we're going to be talking about the real issues in this book, or it felt like, oh, like, did you feel I f- uh, like deeply attacked? I did feel attacked, and I th- and I felt attacked. Um, you know, it it's at kind of like a gut level. It's it's intimidating. You know, I'd never been on the receiving end of a letter signed by two hundred people who are angry at me. Um, a lot of whom are very you know smart, uh, respected people in the community, uh, and also there it was clearly this very institutional response. And MIT is a big, powerful, wealthy you know corporation, right? But. I guess your your question kind of is is leading towards like well is it because controversy sells right it's a it, controversy can be a good thing people right say, so yeah. people say right I don't know I mean I I think it was what was frustrating to me most of all about it is that as you mentioned this whole aspect of the story comes very late in the book and it's kind of a small part of the bigger story I mean I think it kind of echoes and amplifies a lot of the themes that are you know going throughout the book but it's not the central heart kind of beating heart of the book I thought and so to sort of have to spend the first days that the book comes out kind of being sort of on the on the defense a little bit yeah um and I thought that it may be like the controversy sort of obscured I guess sort of the meaningful parts of the book to me I thought um seeing that reaction I wasn't surprised by the pushback at all I mean I think you know the, the pushback ultimately this is a story Henry's story has been kind of a staple of textbooks, not to mention research literature, now for a half century. And that story has always been told in one way. And it's always been told, uh, you know, as a feather in the cap of the neuroscience community. Um, And so when the book came out and when the Times article that preceded it came out, I think suddenly it was like all of these people who had 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 Henry as this sort of undiluted good in the, on their CVs <laughs> forever, uh, suddenly had a darker cast put on that story. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And that, that must be difficult. It's like, um, that's, it happened to me working on, on the book, right? I mean, it happened to me in terms of my thoughts of my grandfather who went from being this, you know, um, nothing but positive character into like a, a guy that I now feel deeply sort of ambivalent about. You know, I, 
I'm horrified by a lot of what he did, and I I wish I wish he were alive so I you know I could talk to him about it you know yeah. um, try to sort of understand more of his motivations. But it's a strange experience to and and there's you know like one revelation in particular that kind of upended a lot of my memories from childhood and made me sort of reinterpret things. And we can, I mean, you mentioned spoiler alert before, we can go into this if you want. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, so I mean, I, I late in the reporting, I heard uh, uh, from a person who, who was in a position to know that my uh, grandfather uh, had lobotomized my grandmother. Um, and this was something that I had never heard before. And, you know, my mother had never heard it before. The person who was telling had had no reason to invent it and, again, was in a very good position to know. But it shook me, you know. I mean, it made me think about, uh, you know, all those, like, old Thanksgiving dinners and, and uh, all the sort of the currents kind of roiling beneath the surface that you're not aware of. And, and just you're suddenly viewing an old story through a completely different filter at that point, you know. And it, and it can, yeah, I mean, and it can shake you. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, you were in a position of having done that to say to these institutions or people who worked with him, hey, I've done it. You should do it, too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm in. Right. Yeah. Reevaluate the past. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing. I mean, like the past, you know, it's the past is a work in progress, just like the future is. You know, I think that's one of the. I mean, I think that's actually one of the lessons of sort of memory science. I mean, we understand more and more how memories actually change over time. Um, but I think, you know, history changes over time, too. You know, nothing's ever set in stone. And, uh, you know, Henry's story isn't over either. And that certainly became clear to me while working on this story. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've done other stories, Esquire stories in particular, that I feel like sort of uh, picked up the rug and looked underneath in terms of institutions and I'm thinking in particular of the to, ca- to catch a predator mm. story yeah. um and then the doctor who wrote uh, proof of heaven oh, yeah. like this idea that uh there's this narrative out there and then underneath there's actually another narrative happening and I don't want to tie things together where they don't exist but I'm just mm. I'm interested in like you having the story and percolating your family mm. story and everything in your mind and then are you attracted to those those mm. stories where you can kind of take something that looks one way and say uh, there's something else going on here? Yeah, I, I, I don't think I ever kind of like consciously think about it like that, but I'm I'm sure um, the To Catch a Predator story, this was a very popular TV show where they would set up sort of sting operations to try to find and sort of arrest men who were trolling the internet for uh, young boys or young girls. Um, it's one of these things where you, if you catch yourself watching it or you like come across it in a hotel room or something... You know, there's something feels wrong, but you don't exactly know what it yeah. is. It's like, well, they're they're catching people doing something bad, yeah. but there's something that feels like morally slippery, yeah, about the process, which is. And there's also something kind of like irresistible about watching it. Yeah, like there's, yeah. It's really compelling TV because you're because it's real and it's raw. And how often do you get to see people in the the worst moments of their life, like whoever they were, whatever their motivations were? You're seeing real raw, like human you know, events, right? These people are, are um, you know, their their lives are changing in an instant as they walk into that, you know, the, what do they call it? The decoy house. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, the, the story I wrote was about a, a case where, you know, a, a man who was, they tried to catch in one of these things, sort of tried to get out of it and then ultimately killed himself almost on camera. Um, and you got and the footage, it's based on the footage? I got footage from, I got the NBC camera people had all this sort of raw footage that wasn't aired. And I got access to that. 
so a bunch of like stuff that never was never can you was say aired. anything about how you managed to do that I, I you know i i think i probably can't say exactly like who i got it from um but it was you know it was somebody close to the case who had access to all these dvds full of full of like unaired uh footage and was it from um, you reporting it and pursuing it or was it 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 came no. to you, and then you thought, okay, now I'm gonna do a story. No, that on this. the the video actually came sort of maybe midway through the reporting. I actually got access to the uh, video, uh-huh. so I had already started on the on the reporting of the story, and I had already spent probably weeks in um, Texas working mm-hmm. on it. And uh, yeah, that was a story pitched to me by Dave Katz, another another editor at Esquire. And it was yeah, I mean, but it was one of those things the the story that you see kind of packaged and and sort of seamless on the television screen was extremely different than the real story. And it brings up all sorts of questions of sort of journalistic ethics, uh, along with kind of legal ethics and law enforcement ethics, because there was this weird kind of like symbiotic relationship between NBC News and uh, local law enforcement agencies uh, and this group with the best name, Perverted Justice, that was like, you know, (laughs) setting up all these decoy operations. I will say, and I just realized, I found this out a couple weeks ago, Chris Hansen, the former host of To Catch a Predator, uh, recently successfully, I believe, kickstarted his own independent, like, let's catch more predators internet oh, wow. show. Uh, so they're doing these things again. Because a- after the after the Esquire story came out, that was, I believe, you know, I, I, I'm not sure cause and effect, but I don't think they produced another show after that. But Chris Hansen just successfully kickstarted his next, like, his sequel. Well, that ties in with the uh, yeah. with the proof of heaven guy too, yeah. because uh, I mean, if you look that up now, I was thinking about it with the with the like MIT pushback on the book that yeah. there's uh, there's just all these websites of people who uh, are debunking your article, yeah. debunking uh, yeah. the fact that this man had a near death experience and wrote about it and. Uh, yeah, kind of industry it's a very it's a very passionate. Like I'm not sure. I'm, I, yeah, the NDEers are just as angry at me um, as the neuroscientists are, which is very strange because like usually they're kind of at odds with one another. Like the <laughs> neuroscientists usually um, are kind of uh, calling bullshit on the NDEers and vice versa. Um, so now uh, they they both hate me. So. <laughs> <you know? laughs> um, and was that too? Was that something that came to you from an editor? The the idea? Uh, of... Yeah, actually, that was Tyler Cabot, uh, who's the editor at Esquire that I worked with most often, and he's amazing. Um, but I think I had already read there had been like an excerpt in in Newsweek about um, this guy, Eben Alexander, the neurosurgeon who went to heaven, and so he said, "Why don't you just like look into it?" Because I was in the middle of working on patient HM, so I was sort of steeping in neuroscience at the time. Uh, so it kind of made sense. Uh, and then it turned out that there was maybe unsurprisingly kind of like a, a family connection too. Uh, when I actually met with Eben Alexander, he showed me the. Um, a wedding present that my grandfather had given to him because his father, even though they were totally different generations, he was the son of a neurosurgeon, even Alexander. He was even Alexander the third, and his father, even Alexander Jr., was apparently really good friends with my grandfather. And it came out that yeah, like my mom used to, yeah, and the, like they'd take road trips down to Florida and they would stop in at the Alexanders overnight and stuff. So anyway, it's a very tight community, the neuroscience, the did, neurosurgery community. Did that article? Do anything to sort of stop the train of that? I don't think phenomenon. so. I mean, I see his book everywhere in airports. Uh, you know, every airport you go to, I think it's still probably you know selling very well. I, I think that. Um, I mean, if anybody wants to read my article, I think that there's uh, you will walk away certainly kind of um, 
with at least kind of an eyebrow raised at his story. But ultimately, I think that even though I believe sort of deep skepticism is warranted, um, people who want to believe are going to believe and they're going to be very resistant to any sort of counter narrative. And and that's fine. I mean, I thought it was an interesting story one way or another. Like I didn't I never I never set out working on that story to like debunk this guy or, you know, whatever. It turns out that his story had tons of holes in it and that, you know, the story as he presented in the book simply was not true. But it was ultimately like this interesting story about reinvention and Mm -hmm. kind of like reinvention in America. I mean, this is a guy who was hard on his luck. He had just gone through tons of malpractice suits. His career, his old life was sort of crumbling around him. And uh, then he reemerged through a strange set of circumstances as this sort of, you know, prophet with, uh, you know, wisdom bestowed upon him by the creator uh, directly, you know, I mean, (laughs) you know, and wrote a book about it. And and the book was based on, you know, the reason people were interested in the book was because of the authority that he had accrued in his sort of earlier life as this, you know, famous neurosurgeon, blah, 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 right? Although that life had already self-destructed, you know what I mean? Um, but he still was able to sort of capitalize and springboard on his on the ruins of his old life to create this, you know, this new persona, which has, I think, I mean, I think he's done very well for himself. It's the American story. It is. Donald I mean, yeah. Trump. <laughs> right, exactly. No. Um, I would yeah. be remiss if I did not ask you about uh, a different type of story, which is the Joplin tornado mm. story, just because that story has stuck with me for a really long time. Um, and partly I'm just fascinated with how you go into a place where something like that has happened and then find people to share an experience that turns into a narrative like that. Like it's every, you know, the whole town, the whole community, everyone has a story yeah. about what happened that day. And so how did it come about that your job is to, okay, you go there and do what? Like, right. Yeah, no, I mean, it came about, I had a couple different ideas for stories before I went to Joplin because I was already in the area. I was working on a story about Chuck Berry and Chuck Berry was putting up roadblocks. And and uh, so I wanted to kind of, I, I was struggling with that story. And then Joplin happened basically as I was flying into St. Louis, the tornado hit um, it, in Joplin, which is about five hours away. I was reading the coverage of it and seeing the awful pictures, but I didn't think about it in the first few days as a story that I would do at all until two things. A, I was frustrated with the Chuck Berry process, and B, I heard or saw this YouTube video from the cooler in that convenience store, the beer cooler in the convenience store that is sort of the center of um, the piece. And I was moved by it. Like, I mean, the thing gave me chills just watching and listening to this thing. I think I had headphones on and it's just like it's an amazing document. And it's the most, even though it's mostly just shadowy form, so I consider it mostly audio, not video. It's still like it's the most visceral thing I can really imagine. I mean, it, you just get the sense of these people who believe they're going to die and then it turns unexpectedly moving at the end. And I just wanted to know who these people were. And so I looked into it a little bit and I saw that really, you know, apart from like two or three of the people of the among the like 24 who were in that cooler, nobody knew who these people were. And I called Tyler, my editor, and said, hey, can I just put Chuck Berry on hold and and go to Joplin and see if I can find these people. We did have, though, in sort of back pocket, if that story didn't work out, there was also a story, the the hospital in Joplin was also 
hit and devastated mm-hmm. by the tornado. And um, I knew that there were stories, like there were already newspaper stories coming out about the experience in the hospital. And I thought that if I can't find any of the people that were in the beer cooler, maybe I can do a recreation of like that night in the hospital. But pretty quickly, I began finding the people that were in the cooler. Like I, that was one of those things that was, it was really, it was uncharacteristically easy in a lot of ways. Like it took, it took a long time and, and all of that. But I knew I had a very clear idea of what I wanted the story to to be. Like, I just wanted to find these people, tell the story of how they all came together. I knew that it was like, it was almost like a scientific sample, random, you know, of, of people just coming together. And so I, I just wanted to figure out who they were, how they came together, and what they experienced there. Because I already knew that the central experience that they lived together was like insanely moving. Um, and then figure out a way to sort of structure the story. So, but it was basic, straightforward you know, reporting Yeah, as, as far as that went. Um, I love that story. Thank you. Um, so my last question is back to the book and sort of, it is such a personal story and I'm curious what mm-hmm. you feel about it now that it's out in the world and you see people interact. I mean, you've written lots of stories mm-hmm. and the world gives them feedback in different ways, but yeah. this is so much your story and your family's story. What does it feel like now that that, is sort of out in the world for other people to experience. Yeah, it's um, it was such a long process, and it was so, you know, it was so much longer than anything I've ever worked on. And 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 then kind of you know overnight, um, it's out there to be uh, loved or hated or or something in between. But uh, but it it feels good. I mean, it feels good to have it out there. It feels I feel, but I also feel like it's a story that as I said, is kind of still evolving in some ways. I mean, I, I, and that was one of the things, the story kept on shifting underfoot while I was working on it. Maybe one of the fringe benefits of my blowing so many deadlines is that by the, some of the most interesting events in kind of Henry's story happened just in the last couple of years. I mean, there was this weird custody battle over his brain that simply would not have been a part of the book whatsoever had I had I met my deadlines um, <laughs> because it hadn't happened yet. Um, so anyway. So the lesson here is uh, blow your <laughs> blow deadlines. Blow your deadlines, exactly. That's when you get the real uh, interesting reporting. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, I Evan. It. Yeah, thank you so much. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Luke Dietrich for coming in this week. His book is called Patient HM. You should check it out. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. And our editor this week was Janelle Pfeiffer. Our interns, Courtney Harrell. Thanks, as always, to our sponsors, EA Sports, FIFA 17, Wonder, Squarespace, Audible, and our ever-loving sponsor, MailChimp. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.